I thought that Mother's Day would be a good day for us to focus on a story about a mother. She has to be one of the most well-known mothers in all of the Bible. It's a passage in the Old Testament. In fact, I invite you to turn there to where we have the account of this story in the book of 1 Samuel in our Old Testament. If you have notes nearby that were inserted in your bulletin, you might want to get those prepared and use those as a listening guide. I trust that that is helpful. As we read this story, and I want to read it in its entirety to set the stage for our message today, you will recognize that we have a mother who's in distress. We find her with tears rolling down her cheeks. And the longing of her heart is to have a child, and she does not have a child. And she's going to go before the Lord year after year after year after year, and she's going to ask God to please give her a son. And God does. The story continues. First Samuel is the first of the historical books of the Old Testament. This is the story of Israel. It is a fascinating time in the history of Israel. In fact, um, you don't have to turn there, but there's the little book of Ruth right before First Samuel. Before that, then, is the book of Judges. And the le- very last verse of the book of Judges captures well the, the political and spiritual condition of the day. And it says about Israel at this time, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As we read chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, you need to know that Hannah is living at a time when they have experienced about 300 years of hapless spiritual leadership in Israel. There have been a few high points. There have been a few that almost led well, like Samson back in the book of Judges. This is before Israel has its first king. In the book of 1 Samuel, the rest of the story is the appointing of kings. Saul, David, Solomon. And then civil war comes and the divided kingdom. It's the history of Israel. It reads well. I would encourage you to read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles if you're unfamiliar with these books. As we begin, it focuses really on a key character. His name is Samuel. He's going to be a mighty man of God. And what we have in chapter 1 is we have the story of his birth. And his, the story of his birth begins with a woman who has no children. Recognizing that this is a time when Israel is in spiritual chaos. It is in spiritual decline. Apostasy characterizes Israel at this time. They, many and most people are far from God. But there are, just like there are in every country of the world today, God's people. God's people who have been faithful and loyal to Him. And it begins with a man, such a man, named Elkanah. Let's read chapter 1 in its entirety. It's an interesting story. It reads well. And for many of you, it's a familiar story. And it will be review for you. For others, it might be a brand new story. And I trust it will challenge your heart today. This is 1 Samuel chapter 1. Will you follow along as I read in my English Standard Version? There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up 
year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. I want you to notice what it just said, Penina's sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, verse 5, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. And as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. So Penina would provoke Hannah. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? And what a husband he is. He says, am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. And now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she, Hannah, was deeply distressed. And she prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow, and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. And Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli the priest took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless or dirty woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you, may, that you have made to him. And Hannah said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way, and she ate, and her face was no longer sad. And they rose early in the morning, and they worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer up to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, he shows his wisdom here again, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. And then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord granted me my petition that I made to him. 
Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. If you were to take time to continue reading, you would recognize that chapter 2 begins with an extended prayer that is a prayer of praise that Hannah prays in response to God giving her a son. For those of you who have been at fellowship and here attending these past weeks, you know that we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew and that we're in Matthew chapter 21 and that in Matthew chapter 21, we encountered a most incredible story um, where our Lord cleared the temple and called for His house to be a house of prayer. We're seeking to rise up to that challenge here at Fellowship Bible Church to evaluate ourselves and asking ourselves, are we a house of prayer? In that same chapter, we have that remarkable story of Jesus seeking a fig off of a fig tree that was covered with leaves, which would have indicated there should be fruit on the tree. And he goes to the fig tree and there's no figs. And so he curses the tree and it immediately shrivels up from the roots on up. And the disciples are most impressed with that. And they ask the Lord, how did that happen? And he says to them, if you just had faith and would overcome doubt, whatever you ask, I will give to you. And we've been challenged by that, and it's led us on a several-week detour on prayer. And at these weeks at Fellowship Bible Church, we're asking ourselves, are we men and women of faith? How do we increase in our faith? How do we overcome doubt that we would see God answer prayer? We have this morning on Mother's Day the testimonial of a woman in prayer, deeply involved in anxious prayer that God would move and answer her prayer, and He does. And so we're trying to learn here as a church from Hannah, we're trying to encourage our mothers today that you would indeed be women of prayer over your children and your grandchildren. We're asking ourselves, how can we increase our faith? How can we overcome doubt? How is it that we will see God answer prayer? Let's see what we can learn from Hannah We've read the story. We kind of have the idea of it. It is an interesting story. What we want to do in just a moment is we're going to ask or answer three questions that I think pop out of the text about prayer and Hannah's prayer in particular. And then we want to look at some observations about her prayer that we would strengthen ourselves in our own prayer life. And then we'll conclude with just um, a few reminders about prayer and corporate gathering and worship and prayer um, from Hannah as well. Let's comment just a little bit. We've already acknowledged that 1 Samuel is written at a time when there's been about a 300-year window when everybody's just kind of doing that which is right in their own eyes. Does that remind you of anybody or a country anywhere? Um, and so these were important days for moms and dads to raise their children to follow after God, and it wasn't easy. You need to know that these two priests that are in the story Hophni and Phinehas, they're the sons of Eli. Eli was a relatively godly man, but uh, he lost control of his sons, and they were godless men. And I've even wondered, and even as we unfold the story this morning, you could ask yourself, I wonder if it was deep in Hannah's heart that if God would give her a son, he might be the kind of young man that would be godly and follow after God and be used of God to turn Israel back to God and get rid of this Hophni and Phinehas because they went up to the temple year after year and Hophni and Phinehas had disgraced the temple, abused worship and become highly immoral men right out in the open. You can read about this in chapters 2 and 3 of 1 Samuel later. 
And it is true, in fact, that when God answers Hannah's prayer and gives her a son, the reason we read First and Second Samuel in our Bibles is because he becomes a mighty prophet of God. Interestingly enough, though, if you take time to read, you're going to find out that Samuel loses his own sons in the next generation. It's remarkable. Well, here we are, this man Elkanah. Another point that we need to recognize is that part of the story is couched in a tension that is created by Elkanah's own decision-making. The man has married two wives. He's married a wife named Penina, and he's married Hannah, and it is clear in the passage that he loves Hannah more than Penina. One of the things that Penina can do, though, to flaunt and, and to elevate herself and her esteem before Elkanah and especially before Hannah, because no doubt she's extremely hurt, Penina is extremely hurt and extremely jealous of Elkanah's love for Hannah, but Penina has brought children into Elkanah's home. You need to know that in the Hebrew mindset in this time in Israel, that it was very important for a father to have sons to carry on the family name. Um, it was very important for a woman to have children. It had to do with her self-esteem and her self-worth and her significance. And so this is a very difficult thing. Some of you know what this is. Even in our culture where it's acceptable to choose not to have children and to have a career even your entire life, and that's absolutely acceptable in our society. Uh, some of you even know what it is to long to have children, and the Lord may not have ever answered that prayer in your life. And Hannah longs to have a child. Well, here's the tension in the home. Elkanah loves Hannah, but Hannah hasn't given him children. It is possible that he married Hannah first. We don't know this, but that it is possible that he married Hannah first, and that because she didn't have children, that he found another wife so that he could have children, and that would be Penina. And we also know in the chapter, early on in the chapter, that it says that she had sons and daughters. So this is not just a brief window in Hannah's life. This is a time when, when she is watching this other wife have one child after another, one child after another. And in her heart, she's just shrinking and caving in and imploding. And that's where you got to give Elkanah some points for saying at least, am I not worth at least 10 sons to you? He's trying to encourage his wife because he loves her. And then we have this detail given to us that every time when it became the annual time of year to go offer up sacrifices, it evidently was a sensitive time because it says that in verse 6 that her rival, Hannah's rival, Penina, would provoke her grievously in the... In the um, Hebrew grammar, there, it's strong language. This is a very, very harsh thing. Very mean, very cruel. That she would reach out and poke Hannah in the eye and, and try to seek the only way that she could trump Hannah's position of love from her husband by flaunting the fact that she could have children and Hannah couldn't. And so there we have it, the, the setup for a perfect story with tension and kind of a good player and a bad player and... And a man caught in the middle here of his own doing. By the way, let me comment that uh, we don't want any men at Fellowship Bible Church to, to point to the Old Testament or to Elkanah, who was a relatively godly man, and rationalize that you can take more than one wife. You cannot. Um, we have a pattern in the book of Genesis at creation, clearly stated by God, that it's one man, one woman, and that's what makes up marriage. 
a male and a female coming together as husband and wife in God's design, and the norm is that they would have children, and that's God's plan. Well, here we are, and we recognize that, that Penina is having these children year after year, sons and daughters, and this is becoming such a big deal to Hannah uh, at some level, even though she knows some of the stories of Abraham and Sarai, and she knows about Samson's mother. She has to be recognizing that her biological clock is ticking. And the longing of her heart is to bring a child into the world and particularly just a son, Lord. And so verse 10 says that that she was deeply distressed and she prayed to the Lord and she wept. Notice the phrase there. She wept bitterly. This is a big deal. It's so difficult. And this is what she prays, verse 11. She prays, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give, to him, give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Let's turn to our notes, shall we? And let's just answer three questions that I think come out of this passage, this story of a woman and her not yet answered prayer. This is sort of dealing with the theology of prayer. And that's one of our goals in this sidebar series that we're doing on faith, doubt, and answered prayer. So we're trying to understand and poke around the scriptures and understand at a deeper level exactly what prayer entails. The first question that I got out of the passage when I looked at this and I stepped back from the story and asked myself some questions was, well, if God is a all-loving, kind, benevolent Heavenly Father who desires to meet His children's needs, why is it that Hannah had to ask for a child? Why would Hannah have to keep asking? Why is it that God lays out for us this thing in prayer that we keep asking? Why do I have to ask God? If He's a loving Heavenly Father, why doesn't He just give it to me? Why doesn't he just pour it out on me? And indeed he does, but you need to understand that in this mysterious relationship aspect of God and his people, and his people approaching him in prayer, that God has laid out some principles, and one of the things is is an ask, seek, knock. Our Lord taught this. In fact, turn to Matthew chapter 7, and you'll notice that, and be reminded, on the Sermon on the Mount, where we were about four years ago, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 7, our Lord addresses this. So we're, we're asking the question about prayer. Why does God require His children to ask for things? Why doesn't He just give them to us? Well, our Lord... Jesus is teaching his disciples and the crowds in Matthew 7, 7. And he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts for your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who... What's the last last part of the verse? He will give them to those who ask for them. 
So the converse must be true, that it must be that sometimes God doesn't give us things simply because we don't ask. It's clear that there's this ask, and then it's seek and knock. You can see that this is set up to be even more of a one-time thing, that I just don't name it and claim it, but there is something about the perseverance of prayer that is reflected even in this passage. And so letter A in our notes under number one, why does God require us to ask for things? It appears that God seems to delight. God seems to delight in His children making their needs known to Him. If you make your needs known to God and come to Him and ask for things, there is something about His relationship as a parent to a child that He responds to that and He's designed it that way. Some of us as fathers can relate. As our children have grown up and matured and, and um, off to college, you get a phone call. You thought, what was that? Hey, Dad, I wanted to ask you a question. It's like, wait a minute, let me clarify. You're asking for my advice? You're not telling me? You, Dad, what do you think I should do? Dad, what about... And those calls come for $20 bills too, but isn't there something even embedded in the heart of an earthly father? And that's what Jesus is referencing in Matthew 7, that I long to meet the need of my child, and I like it when my child comes and asks me for my help. I'm needed. I don't think that God is playing games with his children. I don't think he's jerking people around. I don't think God was jerking Hannah around here playing games with her life. God had a plan. It was a very serious plan. God is doing things that we can't always know and discern. And he wants to be asked. So it's part of the delight aspect of a relationship with children and father. Letter B, secondly, and you don't have to turn to Hebrews chapter 4, but that is just one more note. You can turn back to 1 Samuel if you wish. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, it talks about how we have a high priest, the Lord Jesus, who in his humanity can relate to our sufferings and to our emotional turmoils and, and to our needs and hunger and, and all of the needs that a human being has. And as a result, in his position, seated at the right hand of the Father, even today, we are taught in Hebrews chapter 4 that we are to come boldly into his presence, knowing that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our needs and we are to come boldly in a time of need asking and expecting to receive help. I think that asking letter B is part of drawing near to God in prayer. It's part of drawing near to God. God knows that if we didn't need things and we didn't ask for things, we would probably pretty much just forget Him. And so there's something to this drawing near aspect. Well, as in all aspects of prayer, there's more to it and there's more that could be looked at. But let's ask another question. Secondly, when I read this story of Hannah, and she's crying out with tears rolling down her cheeks, praying for God to answer the longing of her heart. When she prays and God gives her a son... Did Hannah's sincere, persevering prayer, number two, change God's mind? Does prayer change the mind of God? It's an interesting concept, isn't it? Sometimes we use a phrase like this. Prayer moves the hand of God. I think it does. God implements activity and response in response to prayer. 
It's not easy for us to understand exactly how that works, but then we ask the question sometimes, even at a higher level, not just moving the hand of God or getting God to do something in prayer, a prayer of faith, believing, and then he responds, but did God intend to do one thing with Hannah? Hannah then prays, and God changed his mind. Well, this is another pretty deep question, but as to the theology of prayer, but the short answer is no. No. The short answer is no, letter A. In fact, Numbers 23.19 says this. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, you could write this down if you wish. Malachi 3.6, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. In the New Testament, we have support for this. In the book of Hebrews that we were just quoting from and reading and talking about the, the access with a high priest, it also talks about our Lord Jesus there being the same yesterday, today, and forever. In James chapter 1, verse 17, James 1, 17, it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or variableness nor shadow of turning. He doesn't change. We call this doctrine or attribute, really, of God, a characteristic of God. We call it His immutability. If you were an LDP, you would know this term. Immutability. It means that He does not change. Another dynamic here that's involved is the idea that God is omniscient. He knows everything. Well, if God is immutable... He can't change. And if God is omniscient, if you follow the logic through, if you are all-knowing and you know everything, then you can't change your mind because you already knew you were going to do that. It's not a change of mind. And so then you run into a story like this and you think, okay, I'm praying, and I'm praying for God to do something He hasn't chosen to do yet. Does that mean a change of mind? This passage kind of raises the question where you see this tension in Scripture even more, and we'll just take another minute talking about this. Some of you will be more interested in this than others. Um, in Exodus chapter 32, you can write this down, Exodus 32, verse 14, is where you see this intention. Uh, there's a tension here. Exodus 32 is a fascinating chapter where Moses and Joshua are up on the mountain receiving the law. Joshua listens on the way down and he says to Moses, I think I hear the sound of war in the camp. Well, they've been gone for 40 days. The people gave up on Moses, went to Aaron, took all their gold jewelry, melted it together, created an idol of a golden calf, and then threw a huge worship party where they even took off their clothes and got drunk. You'll notice that sexual immorality and idolatry always go hand in hand. But they just went crazy out of their ever-loving mind, they made a golden calf, held it up and said, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. They get drunk, take their clothes off, carrying on, loud music, and Joshua says to Moses, not the sound of war, it's, it's the sound of revelry. They're, they're going crazy. And uh, when Moses gets there, he finds out that God is completely distressed over this. And I'm going to paraphrase now. God says to Moses, you go stand behind that tree over there and get out of the way and duck. Because I'm going to wipe these people out and then I'm going to come to you and we're going to start a brand new nation through you. And Moses says, hold it, wait a minute. 
Are you really sure you want to do this, God? I don't think you should do this. This is not a good testimony to all the neighbors, the pagan neighbors. And let's work this thing out. And then it says in the King James, and God repented. In the ESV, Exodus 32, 14, it says, and God relented. He changed his mind. So how do you put that together? Did God change his mind? Is God immutable? Is God unchanging? God did not change his mind. God knew he wasn't going to wipe the people off the face of the earth. God knew it was, a, it was a way of expressing the wrath of God. It's called an anthropomorphism. Anthro is man. And it's a pomorph- whatever pomorphism means, it's a picture. Okay? It's taking, the, it's taking the characteristics of God. Excuse me. It's taking the characteristics of, of a man and ascribing them to God. So that we can kind of understand what God's thinking. You see, in reality, God is so far infinitely beyond us, we cannot understand him. And so one of the teaching techniques that is used in scripture is to take characteristics of humans and ascribe them to God. Like the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Proverbs 15.3. Well, God doesn't have eyes. God the Father does not have eyes. And he's a spirit. And so it's an anthropomorphism. And that's what's happening here in Exodus 32. It's relating, it's relating the emotion of humankind to God. And God is expressing his displeasure with his people. He didn't change his mind. But there is a mysterious aspect to prayer, isn't there? How and why does God do what he does? Well, we better move on here. Um, that's two questions that we have. Have you filled in the blanks? Number two, A, no. Number two, B, Prayer is not bending God's will to my will or mine, but rather our will bending to His. So what's happening here, Hannah did not convince God to change His mind, but God is at work in Hannah's life and He is watching for Hannah to accomplish His purpose in her life. So prayer is not bending God's will to mine, but rather our will bending to his. And we can remember there's an example in Gethsemane with our Lord very quickly. Remember what he says. He was right before he went to the cross. We haven't got to this point in Matthew yet. And he's crying out and he says in his flesh, in his humanity, Father, is there some way you can please change this plan? Father, I do not want to go through with this. And at the end of his prayer, what does he pray? Yet nevertheless, not my will. You see, the father doesn't bend to the son's will. The son bends to the father's will. The daughter, the father doesn't bend to the daughter Hannah's will. Hannah bends to the father's will. That's part of prayer, bending us to the will of our heavenly father. Number three, and quickly, and you listen quickly, and I'll finish out quickly. And I trust this will be beneficial to you. We're, we're asking the third question that sort of comes out of a response to reading such a story as this. If God is all loving, why does he make us ask for things in prayer? Did Hannah's prayer change the mind of God? Number three, if God had not answered Hannah's prayer, how long should she have kept praying? Or is there a time to stop praying for something that God doesn't seem to want to give you? How long do you keep praying if you don't get an answer? Well, you can take the time, if you're interested in that answer, in Luke 11, verses 5 through 10, 
There's a story there where God illustrates a neighbor coming over to his neighbor, and because he keeps asking, the neighbor finally relents, and it's a lesser to greater concept. The idea is if, if my, my rotten old neighbor will do that, how much more will my heavenly father respond when I ask and when I ask repeatedly? It's the parallel passage of the Matthew 7, ask, seek, knock passage in Luke 11 right there, but he, Luke adds an extra story. In that passage, illustrating that Jesus taught us, letter A, to persevere in prayer. Jesus taught us to persevere in prayer. Letter B, I want you to know, though, and we don't have time to develop this. We've talked about it a little bit already two weeks ago. Sometimes God shows us it is his will to stop praying for change. Sometimes we've been praying for change and sometimes God says it's time to stop. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is, is the illustration there where the Apostle Paul has been in an extended, repeated, persevering pattern of prayer, asking God to take away the thorn out of his flesh. And finally, God says to Paul, Paul, stop praying. Accept it. This is my will for your life. It's going to happen. And my strength is going to be made complete in your weakness. And my will for you is to have this burden to bear. I'll explain it to you when you get to heaven. It's not always easy to know when to stop praying. Characteristically, you should pray and not faint. Characteristically, pray and never give up. Keep praying. Remember Uncle Bob's last week, right? And just keep praying and keep praying and keep praying. And maybe 47 years later, God answers prayer. And that's part of what Jesus taught his disciples to do. But sometimes God will say, um... It's not going to happen and you need to accept it. You know, you're praying for a new Ford because you got a Chevy. Lord, I messed up and I bought a Chevy and I've got a Ford that I want to buy. And the Lord will finally say, stop praying for that Ford and just run the Chevy till it's paid for. And you got to stop praying for change. I don't know what it is that you want to change in your life. Is it a spouse? What is it that you want changed? A boss? A job? You pray, God, your will be done. But every once in a while, the Lord with a still small voice will say to you, you need to accept this as my will for your life and stop praying for change now. This is my plan and my pattern for you. Accept it. Embrace it. Well, what about three observations about Hannah's prayer? This won't take us too long, um, and we'll make sure you get your blanks filled in, and I trust it'll be a blessing. Three observations then. Okay, those were three questions about prayer from Hannah's prayer. Here's three observations about Hannah's prayer. We've emphasized already in verses 10 and 11 that, that she comes with tears rolling down her cheeks, that she is very distressed in all of this. I want you to notice in verse 10 and 11 how much it says... And, and, and then in verse 11, and she said, O Lord of hosts, and notice how many times she calls herself the Lord's servant. In, in, look on the affliction of your servant. Do not forget your servant. But will you please give your servant a son three times? The first observation about Hannah's prayer is that, number one, she rejected all self-confidence and approached God in complete humility. One thing I think you have to get out of Hannah's prayer is that she had no way out. She had no alternatives, and she was completely asking God in all humility 
to please respond. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, James said. Number two, she relied completely upon the mercy of God for the desire of her heart and fulfillment of her request. She was relying completely on the mercy of God. You can see that. You can feel it in, the, in just in the, the emotion of this passage that she so wanted change. And she was completely, God, will you do this? Listen, that's not a bad pattern for our praying to, lie, to lay aside all self-reliance and approach him in true humility and then to rely completely on the mercy of God for his answer. I want you to notice that verse 11 is a plea. It is a plea, P-L-E-A. Notice in verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, we've emphasized this verse, but just notice it as a plea. If you would just look upon my affliction, would you just give your servant this, then I will give back to you. And that's number three in regarding the granting of her request. She regarded the granting of her request, if God would do it, as a matter of stewardship. What do I mean by that? That is, that God would use the answer to her prayer for his glory. For his glory. You've got to be careful with this one. And I admit that I believe that Hannah is coming to a point of desperation in her praying where she's bargaining with God at some level. I think her motives are mostly pure. I think she just can't help herself at this point in her brokenness. And so God, if you would just give me a son, I'll give him back to you. That's not a bad prayer. That's what we exemplified up here this morning. Parents who are recognizing that they're stewards of their children for about 18 years is all they have. And it will go just like that. And you pour your life into them and you pour your prayers into them and you you try to teach them to brush their teeth at least twice a day. And then off they go and they're on their own and that's basically it. But they're God's and remember that God loves your kids more than you do. And they're His and He'll get them where they belong eventually. And so there they are and, and she's kind of bargaining but... This is the part where I wonder if she thought, okay, Lord, if you would give me a son, he could grow up and be so godly that you could replace Hophni and Phinehas with him. doesn't say that in the passage. I just wonder about that. This is where you've got to be careful with this. Back to the Chevy and the Ford. Lord, that big new Ford with leather seats and four doors and sprayed-in bed liner and chrome wheels... If you just give it to me, Lord, I'll, I'll take the pastor out to breakfast once a week in it, Lord. I hope he gives it to you. There's all kinds of stuff we make up. Lord, you give me that bass boat that I really want, and I'll get my unsaved neighbor one at a time in the middle of the river. They can't go anywhere. I got them, man. I'll be, it'll be my, my evangelism tool. And Lord, if you just... If you're standing there at Cabela's and you're ready to swipe the credit card. Lord, if you give it to me, I'll dedicate it to you. You better be careful with this kind of stuff. Because God doesn't play games and he expects you not to play games. But Hannah, in all sincerity, had come to a point in her brokenness where she recognized that if the Lord would just give her a son, it would be all God's son. Lord, this is your boy. It's not my boy. It's your boy. And it would be used for his glory. Three reminders then as we close out. I thought it was striking how Eli in the story, did you remember Eli in the story, how quickly he, he judged and castigated Hannah? 
when she was crying. Here she is in, in, in incredible distress, in all brokenness. And the Hebrew word that he judged her in her drunkenness meant a woman, kind of a woman of the street, no good for nothing. That's why she responded with her answer, I'm not one of those dirty women. You know, when we gather corporately, we often, we have no idea. We have no idea of the deep burdens and longings of the heart of the people around us. When we gather to worship and we gather for prayer and we go to prayer meetings, we need to have a gentle spirit. You don't know what people are dealing with. And I'm sure represented in this room this morning are burdens that would make you lie flat on the carpet and bawl your eyes out that people are carrying. And they don't need you looking over at them saying, You drunk? What's wrong with you? Why are you crying? In fact, be very slow, number two, to judge another person's prayers. Be very slow to judge another person's prayer. You have no idea what they're going through. And you have no idea why they pray the way they pray. Number three, like Hannah, if you make a vow and God answers the prayer and, you've, and it's involved a vow and some of you do this, be cautious. Keep it. If you make a vow, you better keep it. Ecclesiastes says, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. It is better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not keep it. So be very careful. Well, I trust the Lord has used this to challenge you. May God bless Fellowship Bible Church with women who pray, mothers who pray, and children who grow up godly like Samuel, and fathers who love their wives so much that they can say, am I not worth 10 sons to you? That's a great line. I think I'm going to use it today. <laughs> Will you stand, please? Thank you so much for your patience. And may God bless you with a wonderful Mother's Day today. Father, we bow humbly as we conclude, recognizing that there are prayers that have been ongoing for years and you haven't answered them yet. So encourage our hearts. Help us to not grow weary and to not faint, but to rise up on wings like eagles. Father, would you just be at work in the lives of our mothers here today? And would you answer their prayers for their children according to your will? Help the husbands to love the wives here. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven here at Fellowship Bible Church. We ask this in Jesus' name with grateful hearts. Amen.